Welcome to the Health in the 34th podcast. I am your temporary host, April Holman, the executive director um, of the Alliance for Healthy Kansas, and I'll be filling in for Lacey this week. And I'm Marissa, StoryBank Fellow for the Alliance. Today's episode is going to be really exciting. We have some new research that has come out, and our guests today are going to give us an overview of what that research has found. Our first guest is Sonia Bacchus, who is the CEO of the Community Care Network of Kansas. She has 20 years of healthcare experience from all across the country. Um, Prior to her role at Community Care, Sonia served as CEO of the Greater Baden Medical Services, which serves nearly 20,000 patients. Sonia holds a Bachelor's of Business Administration from Washburn University and a Master of Jurisprudence Prudence in Health Law from Loyola University Chicago Law School. She also holds the designation of Community Health Center Executive Fellow from the University of Kansas Medical Center. Sonia, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Also with us is Philip Steiner, Senior Analyst of the Kansas Health Institute. Philip is one of the authors for the report we're going to get into today, titled Medicaid Expansion's Impact on the Behavioral Health System and Users of Behavioral Health. Philip provides expert data management and statistical analysis for projects that are centered in access to care, market innovation, and population health. He holds a master's degree in economics from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a bachelor's degree in economics and history from Rockhurst University. Glad to have you with us, Philip. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Kyle Kessler, who's Executive Director of the Association of Community Mental Health Centers of Kansas. Kyle has over 20 years of experience in public policy with a focus in health and human services. He serves on the Board of Directors for Health Source Integrated Solutions and the National Association of Counties, and also on the Executive Committee of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Developmental Disability Directors. Kyle holds a bachelor's degree in political science and history from Emporia State University. He also holds a master's degree in public administration from Kansas State University. And both Kyle and Sonia are a part of the coalition, the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas Coalition, um, that has been working to get can care expansion um, to become a reality for quite some time in our state. So I just want to thank you, Kyle, for being here and thank both you and Sonia for your work on expansion over the years. Sure. Thanks, April. My pleasure. So um, can you tell us your key takeaways from the report, Philip? What should be the most important thing for us to understand from what you found? Yes, certainly. So um, the report had two parts. Uh, One was looking at data to try to uh, see how many people who might enroll in Medicaid expansion would use behavioral health services and then, you know, what kind of resources resources, um, that would bring to the behavioral health system. And the other part um, was looking at academic literature and studies by Uh, other groups to see how Medicaid expansion might support people with behavioral health needs and what effect that might have on our communities in Kansas if we were to expand. And there were several key findings um, for the behavioral health system. We found that uh, among the new Medicaid expansion enrollees, there would be uh, about uh, 24,154 or about 22% of them 
um, would use behavioral health services. Uh, and this was based on um, some national estimates that we found in survey data. Um, and we, we also found other studies that it could even be higher. So 22% uh, something like an average experience we might expect, but uh, if we looked at others, like for example, West Virginia um, and Iowa, it was much higher, about 33 or 34%. Um, and so with you know more, uh, more people using services, uh, we expect more resources to come into the system. So we, we found about um, $63 million in additional funds would, would be coming into the behavioral health system. Um, and that you know, would mean more, uh, more resources for all different types of providers. We looked at a few specifically. Um, so for example, community mental health centers, uh, we expect about an additional uh, 18 million, 17.9 is, is our estimate uh, for them. And so um, that was one part of it is looking at data to kind of see how many people might use services and what kind of resources might come in if Kansas expands Medicaid. And then the other was looking at uh, individuals and, and uh, communities and how Medicaid expansion um, might affect them, uh, particularly related to behavioral health needs. And so a couple of themes that were interesting and relevant for Kansas, uh, we found that Medicaid expansion was associated with fewer arrests. Um, the findings kind of varied between studies, but some of the best estimates showed that about five, uh, that arrests could decline by between five and 13%. Um, and that arrest for drug-related offenses kind of with a large decrease. Um, and then we also found that expansion was associated with a reduction in childhood neglect and foster care entries. Um, so the two studies found that uh, rates of neglect for children under six declined. Um, one of those studies found that um, repeat reports of neglect for older children declined. And I think consistent with that, um, they found that a reduction, there was a reduction in foster care admissions uh, by about 32% uh, because of neglect, a reduction in foster admissions because of neglect. So when you were talking about your methodology, it just kind of reminds me, there are very few benefits of being one of the last states to expand eligibility for our Medicaid program. But one of them is that we can take advantage of um, understanding what the impacts have been in the states that have already moved ahead with this. So um, that just kind of strikes me as we look at the methodology for this report. It's based on actual experience in other states. Um, so this is not as theoretical as it might have had to been for, you know, those early adopters. Yes, absolutely. There are tons of studies out there um, on, on the, you know, the benefits and the effects of Medicaid expansion. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely a hot topic for health services researchers, and they've, they've been hard at work the last uh, 10 years um, to really kind of quantify and figure out what all the different impacts have been. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting. You talked about some direct impacts, and then you also talked about some indirect impacts. I'm just curious, was there anything that surprised you about um, the findings in the research that you weren't expecting? Yes. Yeah. So one one thing, and this is a little bit technical, but one thing that I wasn't expecting um, was the difference in service use between Medicaid and private insurance. Um, so it's about a, for mental health services, there's about a third more uh, use in Medicaid compared to private coverage. It's like about 20% compared to 15%. And then for substance use disorder, it's about two times more in Medicaid 
than in private insurance, just about 4% in Medicaid and 2% are using services for substance use disorder in private insurance. I, and I think some of that makes sense. I mean, there are different health needs in Medicaid. Um, you know, some folks are, are eligible because of their mental health conditions. But when we dug into it more, um, there was a, a much higher, about a one and a half times uh, higher risk of not receiving services because um, you couldn't afford them in private coverage compared to Medicaid. So um, with deductibles and co-pays and private insurance, you know, uh, sometimes folks don't get the coverage or the care that they need. Uh, and so we, we see that reflected in the data where uh, folks with Medicaid are a little bit more likely to use services. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it also like um, the, the group that doesn't really come into play in that dichotomy is the, the individuals who don't have coverage. So there could be, um, you know, significant med need there, but it doesn't. It's even, there. yeah, ob it's obviously even higher for folks who don't have coverage. in the area of behavioral health in your report. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact on our criminal justice system that you found? Yes, yeah, so um, several studies we looked at found that Medicaid expansion was associated with fewer arrests and reduced rates of rearrest. Many of the studies have found that people involved with the justice system um, have higher rates of mental illness and struggle with substance use. It's about one in five uh, justice involved Individuals have moderate or severe mental illness. One in four have severe or serious psychological distress. Uh, and studies vary, but between 40 and 63% um, were found to have substance use disorder for either drugs or alcohol. Uh, and as I mentioned before, uh, after Medicaid expansion, there does seem to be a decline in the, in the number of arrests uh, by about between five and 13%. Uh, so, the impact is both a reduction in arrests, but that you know translates to potentially some savings for um, county jails in the state. Uh, that's you know mostly probably in kind of some variable operating costs like food and clothing, um, and maybe some care and support services that are provided. Um, but potentially, uh, you know, depending on where and how many people or how many fewer arrests there are, there could be some larger savings as well. Uh, and then there's also new opportunities uh, through Medicaid to provide services to justice-involved folks. So just last week, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid approved a waiver for California um, that would allow them to provide re-entry services to people uh, who are incarcerated, uh, which previously hasn't been available. So folks um, in California are going to soon be able to get uh, you know, some basic services like uh, clinical behavioral health consultations, labs and radiology, medication-assisted treatments, um, some community support services, and kind of like a, a warm handoff. So you're connecting people to care after they leave prison or jail, and that um, could provide some additional benefits and helping to keep folks out of out of the justice system. Um, so I think this next question, I think, is a little bit more tailored to April, but um, how do the unmet needs of parents impact their children? I know that was another indirect impact from this um, from the findings. What does expansion mean for that unmet need yeah. with these parents? 
Yeah, so one of the things that I think um, Philip touched on earlier was that the report found that based on the experience in states that have already expanded, an estimated 305 fewer children would enter the foster care system um, due to neglect if um, expansion were implemented in Kansas. And so I think that really just underscores that um, it would be an opportunity for more parents to have their behavioral health needs met. Um, and obviously that has an impact um, on the children who are living in families with parents who might have those unmet needs. Um, so I think that, you know, overall that uh, would provide an opportunity for more families to stay together. Um, and it would also take away some of the pressure that we're seeing on the foster care system in terms of, you know, a lack of placements for children. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen all kinds of things in the last few years that really are indicative of that stress on the system. And this would be one way to help ease that a little bit. And, you know, ultimately, it's to the benefit of those children and their parents for them to be, um, you know, all together and have their uh, physical and behavioral health needs met. So I think we're going to get into some questions for Sonia now. And the first is um, about a fourth of the people who are in the coverage gap now are likely to use behavioral health services. Do you have a sense if your members are providing that sort of care already? And, um, you know, how does, how does that impact the capacity of your members to provide that um, care for, for patients? So um, about 10% of the million plus encounters that our uh, member clinics provide on an annual basis are behavioral health visits. Um, we know that they are a critical, those uh, visits are critical to uh, the patients that are being served. And our members all provide uh, care, whether they're FQHCs or community-based primary care clinics provide uh, care based on um, a sliding fee scale where necessary and regardless of ability to pay. So those, um, you know, having those behavioral health services are really critical um, for the integrated care models that, um, that our organizations have been working for uh, and working toward um, for many years. Um, in terms of those, those patients who are in the coverage gap, we do know that there are um, a number of them who are taking advantage of the behavioral health services um, that our members are providing. So, uh, Sonia, I was wondering, what do you think um, additional resources would mean to your members and what they're able to do in their day-to-day -day, um, work and care? Absolutely. So simply stated, more resources equals more care and more access to care. Um, it would allow for more providers and staff to be hired, um, which would also include some of those support service staff that are becoming really critical to that integrated care model. Um, that includes uh, community health workers. It includes care coordinators. Uh, care coordinators, um, um, and some of them very specialized nurses who provide care coordination. Um, many of our members, as I mentioned just before, uh, are um, have been providing integrated care models for many years. Some have stepped up those models in recent years. 
but it would allow that to happen. Um, I think the other thing that would also be uh, really wonderful is as those dollars um, are and uh, and the resources are increased um, with uh, with expanded um, uh, Medicaid, that would free up some other resources to um, allow for other types of projects and to add additional types of care into the health centers. We, you know, find that uh, when patients can get more services in one place, they are more likely. To, um, to take advantage of all the services that are available. So it would free up dollars to also help add additional services um, in addition to behavioral health and medical services. And so when I was going through the report, I noticed that there are a number of direct benefits for behavioral health in Kansas based on the implementation of expansion. Can you expand on these benefits like increased resources for providers, the potential for patients to receive care, is there any particular one that would have a larger impact on your members in the state overall? Um, I think there are a couple of areas that um, would have an impact. One of those areas is the ability to be uh, more successful in value-based care arrangements with the MCOs and payers. Um, and especially for patients who have behavioral health diagnoses and medical diagnoses, um, particularly chronic diseases, um, those uh, behavioral health diagnoses and chronic diseases many times go hand in hand and being able to add additional resources through uh, better agreements with our MCOs and payers would be a uh, very clear benefit because again, um, more resources, more access to our patients. And then some of those resources would be really able to be targeted toward those social determinants of health that you know wouldn't traditionally be reimbursed, and so those dollars would uh, would be available to provide some of those services, and you know possibly expand around housing and food and transportation and other needs that the patients have. Sonia, expansion is set to reduce uncompensated care rates, and I was just wondering if you could unpack that for us. What do you what do uncompensated care look, rates look like now? for your members and how would reducing those rates um, benefit the state overall? So um, about one third of the patients seen in our uh, member clinics have no insurance at all. And our member clinics see just over 300,000 patients a year for about 100,000, excuse me, a million plus visits. And so being in a position to have um, a portion of those patients uh, having Medicaid for behavioral health and other services would make a you know a very big difference for um, for our member clinics. Again, it would allow for uh, more resources to add more care, um, more high quality care, and to expand other services that that our patients could could benefit from. What is your biggest takeaway from the report, Sonia? So the two aha moments that I had were the two of the areas that you discussed with Philip earlier, the, the benefits of to society as a whole, to families, and to the state of having fewer arrests, fewer people in um, the justice system, and fewer, uh, as many as, as nearly 30% reduction in entering children into the, uh, children entering the foster care system. 
Um, I think those those are huge. And I think those are things that anecdotally, you know, but when you see the hard evidence, it's truly an aha moment. And then, you know, the the big takeaway is that we have one more evidence-based, data-driven, concrete uh, support for expanding can care. It's um, it becomes uh, nearly a no-brainer uh, when you have uh, this, you know, this this next level of uh, information, particularly around behavioral health. Our state um, places a lot of emphasis on behavioral health and is a critical uh, because it's such a critical resource for us. Thank, thank you so much for your insights there. I think, you know, it makes sense that the indirect impacts would be the things that jump out at you because you probably live the direct impacts every day. So um, I, I think that that was something that jumped out at me as well. I had a sense that it would, um, you know, allow for um, federally qualified health centers to do more if, if we were to expand um, in the area of behavioral health. to Kyle. And Kyle, I was wondering if we could start with um, a question about the what the impact expansion might have on community mental health centers and what benefit would those members see if Kansas were to expand eligibility for CanCare? Well, April, I, th- I think there are a couple things here. I think one is clearly the, you know, people go immediately to the additional resources that would be provided by more people being covered and then being able to bill for services to those people. But it's not just being able to to provide more resources for the care, but to be able to provide smarter care. So I think the relationship to prevention-oriented services, uh, you know, maybe that's vaccinations or well checks, or if someone specific to behavioral health is, you know, feeling upset, whether it's about the pandemic or it's a student uh, who, you know, whose parent wants to get them into services because of anxiety related to school. Well, right now, every child is eligible for Medicaid in the state of Kansas, but maybe their parent didn't realize that they may have some things to work through themselves as a result of childhood trauma or the pandemic or things like that. So uh, I I think that for us to be able to see some of those patients or uh, people in settings that are more preventative versus being referred after an emergency room visit when there was an anxiety attack or where there was uh, depression or something other behavioral health symptoms that ended up manifesting themselves as something more severe, like people thinking that they were suffering from a heart attack, uh, that doesn't just save the system dollars. That saves so much time for families. Again, kids who have uh, anxiety or adults who have asthma uh, and an anxiety attack can induce an asthma attack, which results in emergency room visits, which results in lost time at work or with their families. So I, I think providing smarter care is also part of that conversation with Medicaid expansion. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. The prevention aspect um, is really important, and I'm glad that you pointed that out. It it probably ends up being one of the more overlooked parts of expansion. And we know that, um, you know, Kansans 
can be reluctant to go and seek care when they know they can't afford to pay for it. And so for too many people, they're just kind of suffering in silence at this point in time um, when, um, you know, that's not going to help their condition any. And you're right, that might end up meaning an emergency room visit later on. Um, And that's true for physical and behavioral health issues that people might encounter. Kyle, um, we know that expansion would impact payments for office visits. Would it also have an impact on prescriptions for individuals receiving behavioral health treatment? Yeah, yeah, for sure, at least to some extent. I, I think that, you know, there are, and Sonia alluded to this, sometimes you end up subsidizing some of your operations from the margin you might uh, be able to achieve. In some areas, you end up having to move some of that those dollars over to other areas in order to plug gaps that exist as a result of a lack of reimbursement or adequate reimbursement. But, uh, and there are some programs through the state that are available and then uh, pharmaceutical companies have different uh, sample programs that that we utilize. But uh, I think that if we were able to have people seen in a timely manner, and then they are able to have access to uh, prescribers, whether that's uh, psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners uh, or physician's assistants, that will help in connecting people with timely medications if they're in need of those. So yeah, I I think that's something that is is a connector with Medicaid expansion as well. Um, So Kyle, we have a couple more questions here for you. Um, Can you tell us about the recent policy change creating certified community behavioral health clinics and why expansion would help to maximize the impact of that new system that's been created? Sure. And and that's something we're clearly very excited about with our association is the CCBHC initiative, and which was passed with overwhelmingly bipartisan support by the legislature a couple of years ago. And so with this move towards a cost-based reimbursement and, and for a wider array of services too, this is, this is by no means free money for us. But at the same time, if you have cost-based reimbursement, and then you expand access to a program for a, a, a wider range of, of people. And one of the examples I give is Vallejo Behavioral Health in, in Shawnee County. Um, they see adults. And so for, for them, yeah, cost-based reimbursement is a big deal for the people that they see who have Medicaid or are eligible for Medicaid as a result of, you know, uh, being extremely poor or maybe on uh, Social Security. But at the same time, if you expand that population and more people are eligible for Medicaid, then they would have more people who they were seeing with cost, you know, through cost-based reimbursement. So I think that that's the purest example I can give. Yeah, I, I until I talked to you, Kyle, I didn't really understand that kind of the crux of that new model is that um, it provides that enhanced reimbursement for people specifically who qualify for Medicaid. So if we are not, if, if we don't have the full pool of people that are receiving Medicaid um, that some of, you know, exist in our neighboring states that have all expanded, it still puts your members at a disadvantage, particularly those clinics that are on the board in the border areas of the state. Yeah, yeah w- without doubt. And I think that that's something that as well for our our, our clinics, and we've been really appreciative of, of 
partnerships around the state with the federally qualified health centers because uh, they're able, and it's a really good example or correlation with their uh, ability to ha have reimbursement for their physicians at cost-based reimbursement uh, forever in behavioral health, not just the clinical side with psychologists and marriage family therapists and social workers, but the medical side uh, with psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, the Medicaid reimbursement rates were woeful. Uh, and, and, and so for, for mental health centers that had psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, their loss leaders were their medical side because, you know, either you choose to take a loss or you are absolutely running people through appointments at an expedited rate and don't give their practitioners enough time to talk with them. And that's not a good feeling in healthcare for anybody who's experienced that. So I, I think that the CCBHC side will help prevent uh, the medical side of mental health being the lost leader, because a lot of our medical referrals have been over to the FQHC side for several years and the partnerships we have there. So we just need to get more people into um, that, that can care coverage and out of the uncovered category to really maximize the impact of that policy change. So, um, Kyle, it's expected that nearly a fourth of people in the expansion population will use behavioral health services if expansion is implemented in Kansas. What does this say to you about the unmet need in Kansas right now? And how do you think it will impact health overall? Uh, community mental health centers, every county designates a CMHC. Uh, and, and so uh, there's complete coverage across the state. Some mental health centers serve as many as 20 counties. Uh, others serve a single county, and that may be in urban areas or rural areas. But I, I think that based on what we know about the uninsured population, uh, this will especially have a pretty big impact in urban areas. And maybe even if it's to a lesser extent in rural and frontier areas, um, I think anybody who is able to expedite their access to behavioral health will have a benefit. And, and we're, we saw that even more during the pandemic uh, with the expansion of telemedicine. Uh, you know, it's not always been people's favorite thing to have their car or pickup truck seen in the parking lot of a community mental health center. But I think that the pandemic did a couple of things. One was to uh, get people a little more used to telemedicine. And so they can see their practitioner or provider in the privacy of their own home. But I think it also reduced the stigma relating to behavioral health treatment as well. So people, you know, put their pride aside, whether they needed some needed access to care themselves or for a loved one, whether that was a, a spouse, a sibling or a child. I noticed that even within my own social circles that, um, you know, everyone was kind of feeling some of that stress themselves. And so it became a little bit easier to talk about and a little bit more normalized for people to seek care. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense that um, there are so many really negative things that came out of the pandemic, but there are a few little glimmers of changes that might help us going forward. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to give everyone an opportunity. If there was something that you wished you had said, or maybe we didn't ask a question that you were anticipating, 
for you to just go ahead and talk about those things now. So I'll just um, kind of open it up if there are any things that we might have missed. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to, to lead off there in, in terms of my surprise takeaways oh, uh, yeah. for, for, for the report. Uh, I I think I would. In, in fact, it, I'm, I'm going to come off like a complete hack or a, at worst a plagiarist. But what's the old saying? Great art. Good artists create great artists steal. Uh, I, I pride myself on being a great artist. But and, and, but she nailed it in terms of the findings relating to uh, the the foster care uh, population as well as the arrests. I mean, those are places for me personally, as well as our system, uh, are close to our hearts. I mean, our some of our primary partnerships locally are with sheriff's offices and police departments. And I'm both amazed and inspired by the fact how much more uh, my experience in Kansas has been with law enforcement. They talk almost like social workers. I mean, their ability to identify that someone might be suffering from early onset uh, bipolar disorder or someone may be self-medicating versus, you know, other uh, less uh, less appropriate language that maybe was used 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, so I, I think that us recognizing that those partnerships are huge for us has allowed us to see the opportunities, that, and, and Philip mentioned this as well, the, the connections between people who are being released uh, from county jail, and if they can get a warm handoff to a community mental health center and, and be seen and make sure their medications, if necessary, are, are regulated, uh, if, if, if you can reduce recidivism in that first uh, few days or first week, then Get, get people, uh, you know, back so that they're reintegrated into society and with jobs, then you've, you've, you've just won half the battle right there. So I, I think that that's incredibly important. And we saw that several years ago with a pilot project in Reno County, Hutchinson area, um, between Community Mental Health Center and their sheriff's office. And they were both both sides thought that they would see some improvement and reduction in recidivism and it really shocked them how high that was uh, or how 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 su substantial the impact was um on, on the foster care side you know any child if, if it's one or if it's 50 um that that we can redirect from from foster care prevent from entering foster care that's a long-term uh, it, it, that that will have a long-term benefit for that child and for that family. And oh, by the way, the taxpayers. So th those are things that are really important for us. Uh, probably the wild card, I guess, for me would have been that the managed care companies who we have imp ever improving relationships with and on, on a lot of levels aren't really that active in public policy. I mean, people will ask them questions, but they have not necessarily uh, been any kind of active advocate for Medicaid expansion or really other parts of healthcare. Um, they answer, like I said, they'll answer questions as they're asked, but it, it would be nice if they were more active in the public policy partnerships. 
ditto to Kyle um, <laughs> and the things that, you know, where he expanded on some of the things that I talked about with those uh, with those two areas. My um, in my prior role, one of the um, most exciting partnerships that that I was able to help build was with the uh, state's attorney's office um, in the largest county that we serve. And um, and because there were some specific areas of juvenile justice that were happening. Um, and I didn't realize in myself that all the problems that were happening in this tough area were happening with juveniles. And so we got involved with working with them uh, to be a part of you know, the, the care for young people who had um, um, who had uh, uh, justice, you know, um, entry into the justice system and, and needed some care and support um, for their diversion programs. And so those, you know, those partnerships are just really critical. And um, and so I just did Kyle. Well, uh, Kyle, Sonia, and Philip, thanks so much for being here with us today and giving us an overview of the impacts of the research I know I personally learned a lot, um, and I hope that we'll be able to hear more from you about your efforts in health here in Kansas in the future as well. If you are interested in learning more about the report we talked about today and expansion in general, we hope you'll check out our refreshed website at expandcancare.com. The report is available to everyone. Um, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at expandcancare on Facebook, Twitter, and um, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get all of our latest episodes. We hope that you'll share our podcast with your friends and family and a five-star review would help us out as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you in two weeks when hopefully Lacey will be back in her spot. Thank you. Health in the 34th is a podcast from the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share our podcast with others. Episodes written, recorded, and edited by Marissa Alcantar and Lacey Kennett. Episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join the movement and get involved on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To find out more about the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas, visit us at expandcancare.com.